Hey there, I am Barb Higgins, and this is A Thousand Tiny Steps. In this podcast, I share my stories of love, loss, triumph, and tragedy as I continue to retrace my steps under what led to the death of my daughter, Molly. By doing so, I hope to not only help myself, but to bring purpose and possibility to those who listen. If you are ready to laugh, cry, shake your head in disbelief, then tie, buckle, face up, or slip on your shoes, and join me as we begin our thousand tiny steps. Hey everybody, Barb Higgins here welcoming you to episode 120 of A Thousand Tiny Steps. So here I sit in my front row of my house, which is allegedly my office. If I were to show you the room as it actually looked, you would not call it an office, but here I am looking out at the remnants of our second snow event of the winter of 2023, 2024. It is December 4th, which is a Monday, and it is right after the Christmas show, or rather the Concord Dance Academy Holiday Spectacular. You're hearing this now on the 19th, so we're almost to Christmas. I got to thinking, as I often do, <laughs> each month and each, each event in the life of a griever has different significance. And as the years go along and the grief morphs and changes and life continues along without the people that you miss, how you respond to things and how things make you feel changes. And this is especially true when it comes to child loss. So much of our loss as a family over Molly's death wasn't just that her physical self is missing. It's also that everything that her physical self was supposed to be a part of is altered. And I think that's the hardest part. And I think it's what differentiates losing your great-grandmother from losing your child. If you're 50 years old and your great-grandmother dies, then you've lived 50 years with this person in your life. So the loss is going to be profound because... You've never lived a day in your life without this person in it. I see this with Kenny and his mom and dad. His dad's been dead since 2011. His mom's two years now. Or no, I'm sorry, just over a year. We're in year two. And he misses her every day. They had their routines. They talked on the phone. He's 68 years old. So he was 67 when she died. 67 years of having your mother in your life. What isn't different for Kenny is his ideas about the future. Because as your parents age, as we all age, we understand that what will happen is one day we'll die and every day we're a bit closer to that day. And our children and our grandchildren know that this is the natural order of things. Does it make the death easy? No. Does it make it an okay event? Not necessarily. But you don't grieve all the what ifs. The what ifs are very small in number and you've been grieving those long before you lose the person because you know that the time is coming. I remember Coach Ludi's death really decimated me but he was 98. I knew it was coming. And while I had a horrible, horrible, horrible time dealing with it, part of it was brain tumor recovery and part of it was just all of it. I also knew it was coming. And day to day, coach wasn't in my life every day. So my day to day life wasn't altered much by his loss. Child loss is completely different. And it also depends on when you lose your child. So when I lost baby Gordy in my belly, I was a devastated mess for several weeks, but I was able to really put it aside and move on. I only knew that tiny bundle of boy for about 10 weeks. And then he was dead and we had donated his sweet body to science and I was a basket case. And then my life picked up and went on. My life had never changed in a day-to-day -day way because baby Gordy had never been born and become an out-of-my-body human that I took care of and interacted with. Does it mean I wasn't sad and didn't miss him? No. 
But it was not as difficult to get over as I thought it might. And I would say that I did get over it, that my desire right after the loss of baby Gordy to get healthy and to eat well and to run fast and to do a good job teaching and coaching, you know, I had this rejuvenated effort to make myself somehow flawless. And in that way, I healed myself or contributed to healing myself. The death of Molly was completely different. It was completely unexpected. I mean, looking back on it, there were signs and symptoms, but your mind isn't thinking that way. And so we missed a lot of those. And so I woke up one day with, a, with an alive child and I woke up the next day with a dead child. And there's no other way to say that. And gone was every single plan that we had made. And the beginning days of a loss like that can be really tricky. For example, I got a letter in the mail for her first orthodontist appointment, which was supposed to happen that summer after she died. We got a phone call from a chiropractor that Kenny had taken her to while I was in Amsterdam, checking in to see how she was. Well, you know what? She died. I had bought Gracie and Molly like a glamour shot, like a photo shoot to have headshots and stuff taken of them because they were really getting into theater and dance and really wanted to, you know, you know, branch out. And so I got an email about that and I had to write back and say, Molly died and Gracie's not interested right now. All of these things, every day it was different. And so when you go through a year of firsts, that's the first time that you're doing anything without them. Molly was unplugged on May 7th, which was a Saturday. Sunday was Mother's Day. <laughs> I got no rest. The first day of my life without Molly was Mother's Day. The irony in that isn't lost on me. Isn't lost on Rachel's mom, Jen, either. Mother's Day is very close to Rachel. Rachel was born May 7th and died May 8th. So both of us look at Mother's Day in an entirely different way now. It's another description of motherland that's fairly intense. So Christmas, 4th of July, Halloween, Thanksgiving, Easter, April Fool's Day. You know what? Martin Luther King Day, St. Patrick's Day, whatever, you know, whatever the holidays are, Valentine's Day, they're, they're changed forever when this person that was supposed to be there isn't. And somebody who's 13, they're supposed to be there. She should still be here. She's still supposed to be here. And yet she isn't. This time of year, the holiday season, I would like to say it gets easier. And maybe it does. Maybe it isn't quite so gut-wrenchingly devastating as it has been in the past. But I will say it doesn't get nice. And people finally sort of understand that you don't tell people to try to be happy. The amount of people that <laughs> told me I'd feel better if I just celebrated Christmas we're too many to count in the beginning, and I'm often befuddled by that. I think we tell people what we want. There's nothing wrong with that. This past weekend, as I'm recording, was the, the 18th annual Concord Dance Academy Holiday Spectacular. Gracie and Molly had been dancing for two years. Gracie started in 04. 04, 05, Gracie danced. And then 05, 06, the both of them danced. And then 06, 07 was Gracie's third year and Molly's second year. And they started the Holiday Spectacular. And I'll never forget it. They wore these little blue dresses and they, they danced with the big girls. It was a ballet, Waltz of the Flowers. It was beautiful. And they were in that dance for two or three years in a row. They were in the little combo classes. They were in the three to five class, which was the youngest class at the time. Then they did a, a tea dance and then they wore their pretty blue outfits and did another ballet. They did all of these little dances as part of their recreational combo classes. And then they joined the comp team. And so... How that works with competition dancers is they take a lot of classes, several different modalities of dance, all the tech classes. And so in the fall, your tech class is where you learn your Christmas show dance or the holiday spectacular dance. It was something that Gracie and Molly loved, particularly Molly, I think, or she articulated it better anyway, but Molly was all about holidays. And so, you know, when it was the new year, it was an, an immediate list of the holidays and what we should do and when they were 
and she'd get them on the calendar. You know, I would have the calendar in the fridge and I'd flip the month and there's Molly's handwriting with everything coming up all over the calendar. The holiday show made it onto the calendar, you know, in January for the following December. And it's always the first weekend in December. What was sort of wonderful about this is it really was sort of the official start of the holiday season. We'd get through Thanksgiving and then there was the Christmas show. And so typically Christmas show weekend is when we went out and bought our Christmas tree. The show would end on Sunday. We'd go to the Y or up to Arnie's. We'd pick out a tree. We'd bring it home. Sometimes if Thanksgiving were early, we'd get our tree between Thanksgiving and the Christmas show. We haven't had a Christmas tree since Molly died. We have the Molly B tree. And even that right now, I'm looking at it. It's packed up in a box because we're remodeling the kitchen and we don't have room for it. We had to take it down and you know, take it apart. We have to buy a new white tree. So right now our house has nothing, no Christmas decorations at all, not even a Molly B tree to light up. So we got talking a little bit back about maybe we get a small tree that we can fit in the corner of our kitchen dino living room so that we have lights and, and we can put some, some ornaments on it. And it's something fun for Jack to look at. And that's all coming, but it gets us back to all the conversations we have year after year about Christmas and how hard it is to handle. Yesterday was the first time that the person that won the bag, A, wasn't there in the studio to get it, and or B, was somebody that we didn't know. And this is always a big worry for us. Who's going to win it? Who's going to win it? Will they care? Will we know them? How does this work? Like, it really, really wreaks havoc with us. And we don't always know how to manage it. And, and our big fear is that the person that wins it won't know Molly. Well, sure enough, a sweet little girl named Lola, which if you've read any of my blogs or my emails, you've already, you already know this, won the basket. And it was just sort of silent. And she wasn't there. And did anyone even know who she was? There was no last name. You know, it was just one of those, these things that had all of us. And, you know, and Miss Cindy goes, well, they're not here to win. Pick another name. And I just didn't feel right doing that because people were told you didn't have to be present to win. You know, it, it was just one of those heart-wrenching times. And so we left stage, left the stage, feeling very sad. We really wanted someone we knew to win it. This was what we held. This is what was important to us, this Molly connection, that the person that gets it knows how much it means to us. So I'm standing backstage and Jen, Rachel's mom, says, you know what, this is okay. Because now a whole new family, people that know nothing about Molly and Rachel will learn about them. And more people will understand What's it like to be us and what Rachel and Molly were like and the Mrs. Peterson scholarship. And so Gracie and I tried to feel okay about it. And so we got in the car and we drove to their home in this beautiful home. They live in a suburb of Concord. And so we got there and then I recognized the little girl. She looked very familiar to me, which we'll come to play in a minute. And the family was wonderful. She had two older brothers. We show up with this big basket, you know, we explain it. We talk about Molly, Gracie and I sort of interrupting each other. The poor parents must have been overwhelmed, but they listened. They asked questions. They both knew who Jack was. Then when they realized I was his mother, they were like, oh, right. We saw this in the news. Like it all started to click for them. And then when we talked about what was in the bag, I took the letter out and showed her the letter. It's like five pages. She was just like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. So we left feeling a lot better about it. And we realized that so much of grief and holding on to our loves, loved ones is that frantic desire to keep everything the same. No, 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 don't change, don't change, don't change. What that does is it brings you right back to the shock of when you first find out that your loved one is gone. And I know that it's the same for both of us, that we both go right back to the horror of the doctors telling us that she wasn't gonna wake up and coming home without her. And as the weeks and months went by, the reality that this suckiness was not gonna end, it takes you back there. And then it puts you ahead of all that you've gone through. So to get to where you are now, you relive all that you went through to get here. I don't know if this makes any sense. 
But I know that a lot of you, if you've listened to every single podcast episode, this might seem repetitive. And it is because that's what grief is, right? That's what trauma does. It reinserts itself into your life when you least expect it. And sometimes when you're totally ready for it to. So the Christmas show, not surprisingly, is a pretty huge thing for us. And Gracie and I got talking about it. In the first year, when Gracie went back to dance, Molly died in May. She starts dancing in September. And immediately it's Christmas music, right? And we boycotted holidays that first year. Actually, the first two years, we, we just ignored the holidays completely. Pulled the shades down, watched TV, ignored it, and just moved on. We remember the first year, Gracie simply said, I'll do Mother Ginger because I'm Mother Ginger, and that's all I can manage. And we had gone, we went away to Hawaii for two weeks in November. You know, we got out of town as much as we could. I just think back to how out of it we were. And there was no Molly B. Basket yet. It was just too soon. All of it was too soon. You know, in the year prior, 2015, that was the best Christmas show ever. They were in a bunch of dances. They won a basket full of makeup. You know, they were just coming into their own. Gracie was in high school. Molly was in seventh grade. They really felt like it was the beginning. And it takes us back to New Year's Eve and 2016 is going to be the best year ever. And we held hands and, you know, and then 2016 is, you know, the year of hell. So we got talking about these things and how much we would never want to go back to those first years and those first holidays. Our first two Christmases without Molly, 16 and 17, we drove to Florida to Amelia Island to visit Davy. Both years, we had horrible weather. Actually, our, our weather record for Christmas in Florida is awful. We've, we've seldom had good weather, consistent good weather. We've had some okay days, but nothing like what we really need or want. It's always been sort of cold and often rainy. We went down and the first year that we went, we stayed right on the water. I think both years we did. And it was just foggy and cold. The second year, it was like high winds, gale force winds, this massive storm. It was, it was just a terrible thing. And we had a horrible time. You know, I remember just panicking, just panicking that this was life. How could this be life? I was also drinking a ton at the time. Kenny and I were both drinking so much alcohol back then. I couldn't wait until afternoon came. You know, if I hung out with that guy, Doug, that I would spend time with sometimes, we'd drink at lunch. It was a mess. I mean, it was, I just would never want to feel that way again. And quite honestly, I still feel that way sometimes. So then we got thinking about the Christmas show specifically as the years have gone by. And once we got through the first one, she did the dances in the second one and it was a bit better. And that was the first year that we did the Molly B basket. And we put it together and we went shopping. It was so small now then compared to what we do now. And Peyton Shaw won it. And it was like the greatest thing ever. Peyton wasn't even supposed to come to the show. She didn't have enough money for tickets and a show ticket. So Missy gave her a show ticket and then... Jagger's mom, and then she could buy raffle tickets and she won the basket. And she only bought like, you know, one raffle ticket. She didn't buy a whole bunch. So it was the most amazing thing. And it was just such a good thing that she won it. A year later, Missy won it, the one that gave her the free ticket. So I remember Gracie and I having this immense sense of relief that the person that won it was supposed to win it, right? That Molly was somehow had a hand in this. So as we went along, so 2019, we had met the hungers and the kidney transplant had taken place. And we did the big Molly B basket and who wins it? Allison Hunger. And I remember Dave, her dad was just like, I knew it. I wasn't even surprised. I knew it was going to happen. She had bought a bunch of tickets, but everybody bought a bunch of tickets, right? It wasn't like she specifically had a pile of tickets. So that was in 2019. In 2020, Santa Claus won it. CDA hires a Santa, kind of like hiring a mall Santa, like a helper, and he won it. And so when they went back to CDA after the holiday spectacular was over, he opened up the basket. Let's open it up now. Let's open up the Molly B basket and see what's in here and who wants what. And all of Molly's teachers got to look at everything in there and decide what they would take and what made sense for them to keep. Cindy took the scarf. 
Paige took the CD and the lunchbox. Hannah kept the leggings and the, and the Kate Spade wallet. They all found things that they liked and wanted. Nobody could go to the Nutcracker. So they, they announced those tickets on the CDA website and a family that wouldn't likely go got to go. And I remember, I think sometimes that that's my favorite year because it really was the spirit of the basket. Molly would have wanted anyone who connected to something to have it. I remember Miss Hillary took home the Ivoriella stuff and a Molly B shirt for, for Hadley. These things were meaningful and they mattered. And so last year was sort of the first year that it was getting like six degrees of separation now where it's getting further away from Molly. And a little girl named Azalea won it. Now I knew her mother. So this is a connection that, that was strong through me. And Azalea was just the kind of girl that benefited from this basket. I mean, any, anyone would benefit from the basket, but you always want somebody with a good heart that understands its value and all that and would do it for the right things. And that led us up to this year. And, you know, last night when we got home after this wonderful visit, we were sort of sitting on the couch and I'm not going to lie. We both had a, we both had a drink, (laughs) an alcohol drink. I had a vodka and seltzer and Gracie had a little Malibu and and body armor, (laughs) a little sweet drink. We just needed to calm down. It was overwhelming. And we both were just on the verge of tears. And Gracie's on her phone and a CDA family, Miss Caitlin, who was one of Gracie's teachers when she was little. And Miss Caitlin's daughter dances in one of Gracie's combo classes. Come to find out the little girl, Lola, that won this year's basket is Brighton's dad, Mr. Joe, his God, godchild. So this is a family that's connected to the rackets. The relief on Gracie's face was palpable. I could have cut it with a knife. Does it change anything about Lola and and her family winning? No, except it created a connection. It made us feel like, okay, okay, okay. We can do this. We can do this. They'll know. They'll understand. I don't know how to explain why this is such an emotional thing, but I think it's because it's just one of those processes of grief that for us is the rest of our lives. And for others, people move along. And the person that gets the basket will always matter to us. It will always, always be important to connect with the winner of that basket because we pour our heart and soul into the items in the basket because we're Christmas shopping for Molly. And that's the best way to describe how it feels. In the early years, a lot of Molly's friends participated in buying things. They've sort of all gone by the wayside. Her friends are, don't even live in Concord for the most part now. They're truly living their lives. But you know, Derek's mom, Maria, she bought a pile of tickets. I would have loved for Maria to win this basket. She knew Molly and she would understand all of these things and she would know who to give them to. Does it mean Lola shouldn't have won it? Of course not. It means that these are things I have to let go. And that got me thinking about grief and all of the things that we learn as we go through grief and loss. And let me be clear, my loss is child loss. And I would say there's not much worse than that, but your most profound loss will feel just as bad to you because you haven't had anything worse from it. When I lost my job in the district, I say this a lot. I was a mess. I was a horrified, petrified mess. Now that Molly's gone, I'd give up a thousand jobs to have her back. But at the time I was paralyzed by it. I stayed in bed for weeks. Any trauma that you suffer, the holidays are gonna bring up all of the little pieces of it that make it different. You lose your house in a fire. So now you're having Christmas in a hotel room. And what you want to remember is your stairway with the garland going down and the bay window that you always put your Christmas tree in. And those things are now gone forever. So are the decorations that you put on those trees. So loss can look a million different ways. And sometimes people get sad for losing things that they never even had. People who grow up in poverty, who never have a big fancy tree, who never have a lot of presents. Little kids who go to school and and learn that Santa brought everyone else beautiful toys and Santa didn't even come to their house. 
that's loss. That's trauma. That's grief. Because you spend your whole life looking at what everyone else has as a reflection of what you don't have. It's impossible not to look at things that way sometimes. So here we are. It's December. Early on, I wrote a blog about 30 days of no thanks and how the whole contrived gratitude angered me. And I think it's a trigger for me because I have a million reasons I don't want to be grateful. And if I have to be happy to be grateful, well, that's unfair. And now I have to be happy and grateful. And I've learned in my grief that living in gratitude happens independently from happiness. If you wait until you're happy to be grateful, then you're missing out on a whole lot of things that you can have gratitude for. And I know that sounds hokey, but I'm there now. I'm in year eight without Molly in my life, and I'm just getting there. So, you know, I understand. It takes a while. In the past couple of months, I have come across two families who are in the throes of very recent child loss due to medical neglect. And so these families are in that horrifying place where they have no child. They're in that bad place. We were lucky in the sense that Molly's death was followed by summer. And we could sort of sit outside and time sort of stands still in summer in a lot of ways. And we could, we could just sort of escape from the reality of life. We, we could ignore Christmas because Gracie was part of the decision process. She wasn't five. A woman I know whose daughter just died, she has two younger sons and, you know, they believe in Santa. I mean, I believe in Santa, but Santa's coming for them. They have to put it all together. They have to do it. They can't just avoid it as much as they might like to. They can't. I don't know what I would have done if I were in that situation. I mean, I would have, I would have done it because I would have had to, you know, the whole, you're so strong. If anyone can handle this, it's you. Yeah. Okay. Well, no, you handle things because you have to, you have no choice, right? If you find yourself in deep water, you tread water, you swim. Here we are now in the Christmas of 2023. And the last Christmas that I shared with Molly was 2015. When I was 15 years old to when I was 23 years old was a lifetime. The people in my life where I lived, my experiences were completely different. And I can't imagine that any of Molly's friends in that many years, right? 2015 and 2023, they were 12 and 13. Now they're 20 and 21, right? You know, do they even remember Molly? I don't know. These things like this bag that keep Molly alive for us, you know, can be a blessing and a curse sometimes. So then I got thinking a lot about Gracie. I like reading little bits from Motherland. And so I'm going to read a chapter about Gracie. And the reason being, when I would look at the dynamic of Molly and Gracie, Molly was just more articulate. So she was often the speaker. She was the one that often shared what was going to happen. And she often interpreted things for Gracie. And I remember worrying that Gracie didn't have that strength and that inner fortitude or that inner anger. Molly was pissed off all the time to survive. And I was wrong. One of the first things I noticed in her was that she was now one third of the decision-making, not one fourth. And she was an equal third, not two parents, two children. And so her transformation after the death of Molly was profound. The fact that we can sit together and have conversations and really openly share about all that we went through and where we are now is a wonderful thing. We don't always agree. Gracie's not always happy with me. I'm not always happy with Gracie, but I think sometimes that's also just motherhood, right? How many of us always love our parents? We don't. So I'm going to read a chapter from the book, chapter 31. It's called Gracie. I'm still here, mom, Gracie says. She says it when she feels that my grief is so overwhelming that I can no longer see what's in front of me, when she feels like I no longer see her. You have a living child, mom. That's what Gracie wants me to remember. And the world reminds me too. You have Gracie, my friends and family say. Even people who don't really know me say it. This is the subtext. I should count my blessings. 
Be grateful for what I have. Acknowledge the gift of my one beautiful living child. And I am grateful. Every single moment of every single day, I'm grateful for Gracie, my sweet firstborn, who is such a kind and gentle, beautiful soul, who has lost so much. But it's not as simple as that. Much as I'd like it to, feeling grateful for Gracie doesn't make things better, because it's not designed to. One child is never meant to compensate for another. My grief made Gracie feel unwanted, unloved, not enough. But this is the point. It's not that Gracie isn't enough. It's that she was never meant to be enough. She was meant to be one of two sisters. She was meant to be herself, not herself plus a compensation for a lost sister. I love Gracie more deeply than ever, and I feel grateful for her, and she's enough in herself. I want to free her from the burden of thinking that she somehow needs to stand in for Molly. Life's hard enough just being Gracie and all the beauty and complexity and challenge of that. And I want her to focus on that, on being fully herself, not on making things better for me. I want her to know that she can't take away my grief or make up for Molly being gone. I want her to know that is not her job. And that remembering Molly and talking about Molly and sharing Molly's story with the world isn't about diminishing how much she means to me. It's about the fact that nothing can ever make up for having lost my child. The two things are separate. Our relationship after Molly died took on other levels of complexity. Beyond this battle of Gracie feeling like she somehow must suddenly be everything for me, both herself and Molly, was the pain of how completely our lives and our family had changed and how none of us knew how to navigate that landscape. I'm no longer the same mother. Gracie is no longer the same daughter. Losing Molly changed both of us. Quite a bit has been written about child loss, comparatively little about sibling loss. What people don't think about is that when a sibling loses a brother or sister, they lose much more too. They lose their parent or parents, who will never be the same again. They lose the family life they once had. Kenny, Gracie, and I can never recreate the dynamic that we had when Molly was here. Molly was too integral to how we were as a family for that. And Gracie will never be the person she was when Molly was her sister, alive, standing, dancing, and sleeping next to her. Gracie no longer has Molly. And her family no longer exists or not in the way it did. The journey of grief I share with Gracie is one of the hardest things about this process, perhaps harder even than dealing with all those people who want me to be done with grief already, those who don't understand. You'd think that Molly's death would have brought us closer, but in truth, it's created a dynamic between us that I sometimes find impossible to navigate. I feel as though Gracie can never understand the extent of what I've lost as a mother. Gracie feels that I can never understand the extent of what she's lost as a sister. And Gracie feels more than this, too, because when Molly died, she didn't just lose her sister. She lost her parents, her family, and her whole way of life as she knew it. Kenny and I are broken people now. We are doing the best we can. Some days are better than others. But we'll never again be the mom and dad or the couple or the individuals we were when Molly was still alive. And Gracie feels it. She knows that she's lost who we used to be for her. Gracie and I needed each other so badly. We needed help and comfort, but each of us was too wrapped up in our own grief to be able to give that. Some days when I'd cry and cry, saying, please come back, Molly, please come back, Gracie would snap back at me. She's not coming back. Stop it. My grief made her uncomfortable. It was too much, and it sometimes felt like a competition, too, which one of us felt worse because Molly had died. It made us intolerant of each other and angry. 
This is why so often families fall apart when a child dies. Everyone wants the other person to be what they need. Gracie wanted her mother, the mother who was strong and together and had the answers and knew what to do next to make it all better for her. But Gracie's mother died when Molly died. And I wanted the old Gracie back, my sweet, happy girl who stood in the doorway of my bedroom, showing me Molly's pink dress, her eyes full of light and love for her sister and hope. But that Gracie died with her sister. And we both wanted Kenny back, the dad who stood fixing the fence with Molly a few days before she died and gave them their baths as babies and laughed with them and played with them. But that Kenny died with Molly as well. We hadn't just lost Molly. We'd lost each other too. Grief turns us inward. We do all we can simply to survive. We're no longer who we were, and we have little left to give, even to those we love most. Many of my arguments with Kenny were about our grief, too, and our inability to be there for each other. I remember early on, I would sit on the couch and cry and cry, and he would just sit there. He wouldn't even try to comfort me. He felt too lost and too angry, angry at the world for having taken Molly, but angry at me, too in the way that parents are always angry at each other when their child gets sick or dies, because the expectation is that somehow we should have saved them. In those early days, it was like we were sitting in the aftermath of a loud explosion or the collapse of a building. Our eyes and lungs and mouths were filled with dust and smoke. Our ears still rang from the sound of the explosion. We hardly knew whether we were alive or dead. How could we be there for each other when we couldn't even see each other anymore for all the smoke? or hear each other's voices from the ringing in our ears? How could we be there for each other when we hardly knew if we ourselves were alive or dead? Not that I didn't try to be there for Gracie. I knew I was her mother. I knew I needed to help her and support her. And if I'm kind to myself, I think I did my best, but it wasn't enough. Gracie was angry with me in the same way that Kenny was angry with me. I was the mom. I was meant to save her sister. I'd failed at the one important job the universe had given me keeping her little sister alive. Gracie was a tender soul to begin with, so her withdrawal inside herself when Molly died was who she was anyway. So she kept to herself. She didn't go out much. She canceled plans with friends. School and dance and socializing were often too much for her. Grief is a full-time job. It doesn't leave much energy for normal living. But over time, I began to see a new strength in her, one that I'd first seen when she stood up to the nurse who said that we had to unplug Molly on that Friday. I'd seen it too when she took her friends, one by one, into Molly's hospital room to say goodbye. And I saw it the first recital after Molly died, when the t-shirts for the Dance Academy didn't have Molly's name on the list of dancers. I've never heard her scream so loud. She was so angry. Molly had danced at the Dance Academy since she was two years old, and now to Gracie, it felt like she was already forgotten. The new Gracie spoke up. She advocated for herself and for Molly. Molly's name was never left off that shirt again. Molly's death changed Gracie. The grief changed her, but she was also growing up. When Molly died, Gracie was 15. Now she's an adult, old enough to have a baby of her own. Molly's death came at just the point where she was tilting on her own development axis. So things were shifting anyway. But I do think that this new strength came from Molly's death. If you've walked through fire and come out the other side alive, even if you're burned and limping and choking on smoke, a part of you knows that you can do anything now. I heard the psychologist, Adam Grant, talking about the differences between PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, and PTG, post-traumatic growth. We've heard lots about the former, the stress and anxiety and overwhelmingness that is the legacy of trauma. Kenny, Gracie, and I all had that. 
I think that anyone who loved and lost Molly so suddenly had that. But there's another kind of response to trauma that's less talked about, a more hopeful form. And I see it in Gracie. It's called post-traumatic growth. Parts of her will always feel weak and vulnerable and exposed because of losing Molly and losing her in the way that she did. But I also see now strong shoots of growth, shoots that say, look at what happened to me, but I'm still here. Don't underestimate me. And don't think that I will ever let anyone silence me in the way that my sister was silenced when she spoke up about her needs or her pain. Or that's my hope for her because I'm her mother, because I must believe that something good must come from all this, because I believe more profoundly than that, that Molly hasn't abandoned us, that her form and presence is different, but she is standing right here by her sister in ways that we will never see or know or understand but which are helping Gracie turn into the strong, resilient young woman that she was always meant to be. Stronger even, perhaps, because of what she lost. This chapter matches perfectly with my whole feeling around making believe you're grateful for things. It matches perfectly around the idea that we have to be something even if we don't want to be. And the idea that if something good comes from something bad, it means that the bad thing was supposed to happen or the bad thing wasn't bad. I look at, at some of Molly's friends who, in the aftermath of her death, redoubled their efforts to succeed in the way that they had all promised each other. Derek and Keisha both made deathbed promises to Molly. And they're both you know, in New York City and traveling. Derek's on Broadway now. Keisha went to college in New York and, and has been in, in TV movies and, and New York City plays. She's, she's making it. She's doing everything that she said she would do in that heartfelt goodbye to her friend Molly. Does that mean they wouldn't have done them if she had lived? I don't think so. But I do know that a death like that when you're in seventh grade changes the trajectory of everything, even if only temporarily. But any change in trajectory changes the outcome on the horizon. I look at Gracie now and there are times that I get short with her. She has a very hard time making a decision. She becomes like a deer in the headlights. Sometimes when she doesn't do something, my initial thought is she's being lazy and really she doesn't know what to do. Executive functioning, which was hard for Gracie in the first place, was decimated in her in the aftermath of Molly's death. Her best therapy was cognitive behavioral therapy. And her wonderful therapist, who she still sees, would help her create lists and very meaningful black and white things that she could do to alleviate anxiety and stress. And she executed those beautifully. So here we are in December, navigating through Christmas number eight without Molly and Christmas number three with Jack. Now, Jack's first Christmas, he was eight months old. He's never going to remember that. And so we went to Florida. We saw Kathy and Ricky. Jack went to Disney a lot the first year of his life. We went to Deb Stanley's house in Ruskin, where we always go. And we spent some time on the beach. That's what we did. We had a couple of Disney days. Then we went right back to drop Gracie off for the Disney College program. So that was Jack's first Christmas. Last year on Christmas, we also went to Florida. That was a stressful one. We had crappy weather. It was 40 degrees and rainy the whole time we were there. So he associates Christmas with Epcot and all the characters. And we're going this year. We're going to spend some time with the judges, which will always be a blast. So he doesn't have an attachment to a Christmas tree and decorating. But we have gotten to talking about what would make sense. Will Christmas always be for Jack, jumping in a car or on an airplane and going somewhere? Kenny and I and Gracie talk a lot about traveling, about getting an RV and driving around for a year about heading to Europe and settling there for a while. A lot of what I do, I can do online. I can coach at a CrossFit gym anyway, right? These things come up. Part of me is very reluctant to establish any sort of tradition because 
all traditions do when something happens to interrupt them is remind you that it's over. Gracie and I were talking about how much I would decorate our house and, and the front hall with the lit up little buildings and the, the garland down the stairs and the lights. I got so excited doing this, so excited, getting a tree, a big, beautiful Christmas tree and decorating it. Talking about it right now puts a knot in my stomach. So I imagine when you're listening to this, listening to this on the 19th of December, that maybe we'll have a little tree in our living room or at least some, some lights outside. I don't know. I don't know. Jack is young enough yet that he doesn't really know what he's missing, if he even has to feel like he's missing anything. It's just hard. The scary part of Jack for me as his mother is thinking into the future and what we'll look back on and first days of school and, and how much of those things will remind me of Gracie's and Molly's first days of school and just all of, the, all of those things that just come into my head so much and how much of my memories are tainted and tarnished by, by Roy and all that I lost in that friendship. These things hang over every experience I have. So here we are. It's December 19th. We have a week until Christmas. And I have no idea <laughs> how I'm actually feeling today as you listen to this, because I'm telling you this on December 4th. And on today, December 4th, I feel quite anxious, quite honestly. So I have a lot coming up in the podcast. More guests interviewing some high school students around a thrift shop at Concord High School called Molly's Closet. It's a sustainable thrift shop. It's a wonderful, wonderful initiative started by my neighbor, Jen. That episode will come up. I'd like to have more guests on because I just think it gives more, a wide, wider range of listening listeners to the podcast. As always, I would reach out to you to share ideas and suggestions and anything that you think that might you know, make the podcast better. Motherland goes well. I need to arrange more book tours. If you live far away and you want to have me come to your locale and do a book signing at your local bookstore, I would love to do it. I think loading up my car and driving to, you know, Ohio or New York or Missouri or Montana or somewhere to do book signings would be, it would be a wonderful way for me to share Molly. So reach out, reach out. If you live in a town that has a great little bookstore and you'd like me to set up a book signing and come, I would love to do it. So happy holidays, whatever you're celebrating. I hope that it goes well. I also completely give you permission to freaking hate it. If you don't want to celebrate your holidays, don't. I, I get very, very frustrated with people who put pressure on others to celebrate these things. I go through the motions all weekend long at the holiday spectacular. When people said, how are you? I said, fake it till you make it, baby. I was happy to be there, but I was a basket case. I was a mess. I wanted to keep my mind occupied and busy. I didn't want to let myself get too caught up in the feels because it's such a dangerous place to be. And I had alcohol. So as I'm recording this, my idea is a dry December because I want to feel good I don't want to gain weight. I don't want to fall back into bad habits. And I'm looking to do another health challenge in the new year, maybe another 75 hard. That was actually pretty fun. Whatever's coming for you, a week off from school if you're a teacher, some vacation time if you're not, time with family. Hopefully you have family. If you don't, time with friends. If you like to be alone, a day off for fuzzy slippers and old TV, right? Do what you need to do to make the holiday exactly what it is for you, even if that means ignoring its existence completely. Do that. Be good to yourself around the holidays. Be good to someone else. If you know someone that's struggling, reach out and let them know that you're there, even if you don't get it. I know for me, when people just said, I can't imagine what this might be, but I'm thinking of you so much better than, come on, be happy. So sit with people in their reality and let them know that you're there. And as always, have a good day, everybody. Hey, thanks for listening and supporting the podcast. Feel free to leave a review and share my stories with your friends. Please reach out with your own stories as I love connecting with my listeners. If you would like to get to know Molly, 
head over to mollybfoundation.org to see what she is all about. If you want to see what I'm up to next, you can find me on Instagram at barb underscore 444, on Facebook as Barb Higgins, and at my website, a thousandtinysteps.com. And while you're there, sign up for my newsletter, a weekly way to find out what's up in the life of Barb Higgins.